recent sitcom, a uh, young couple was living together, and the man decided he wanted them to get married. They'd been living together for a while, and he was ready for, for marriage. Uh, the girl wasn't quite so keen on it. She said this to him, I, I don't need a piece of paper to prove my love for you. I already love you. In fact, just going through that wedding ceremony would only complicate things. Now, why would she say that? I think she might say that because she buys the American view of love, that love is simply about feelings. And that I love you now. I feel the right things for you. The key word here is now. And it would complicate things if we were to add this piece of paper, this marriage license to this. Now, how would it complicate things? It would complicate things because it would cut off your options. It would say it's not just about feelings. It's also about an obligation. It's about a duty. It's about a, a commitment that you make to each other. And, and so, yes, it would complicate things in the sense that my options are no longer open if these feelings, which love is based on, ever fade. In fact, even sometimes in the ceremony today, we've changed the words where the vows for hundreds of years have said, till death do us part. Now we have people saying, just a very small tweak, but an incredible difference, till love's death do us part. Why? Because we have this conflict going on in our mind. Go to the screen then with me of this conflict between duty and desire, all right? We have a conflict going on between those two things. We think that they don't go together. That's what that lady was saying when she said, if we got this piece of paper, it's just going to complicate things. You know, in, in ancient cultures, many ancient cultures, marriage was just about a sense of duty. You didn't get to pick who you married. You were just assigned that person. It really wasn't so much about your feelings as much as it was just this was a social contract that held society together and your family together. And it really didn't matter too much whether you had feelings or not. That was not what it was about. That was sort of an ancient view of marriage. In a modern Western view of marriage today is it has very little to do with duty. It simply has to do with desire and passion and feelings. And so now you do get to pick your mate, which I think we probably agree is a good thing. But you also seemingly have the power to unpick your mate. Because if the feelings fade, I just jump out of there. Now here's what I want you to see this morning. In the Bible, there is no conflict between duty and desire. In fact, the Bible unites duty and desire. The Bible unites promise and passion. The Bible unites commitment and feelings. In fact, I think biblically it would not say there's a conflict between duty and desire. The Bible would say those two things are complementary of each other. Now listening to the messages the last few weeks, you might have gotten the idea the only thing that I'm trying to teach here is about the duty of marriage and you've got to stick in there no matter what happens and it's hard work and all those things we said. Those things are true. But don't, don't make that your only picture of a biblical marriage. Some people try to say that's all biblical marriage is. They have not read the Song of Solomon, have they? 
Uh, the Song of Solomon, you know, if you want to get in something in the Bible that's pretty explicit, pretty descriptive about the passion of marriage, about the unity in marriage, even physically, go to the Song of Solomon. Biblical marriage unites those two things. And as we go to our chapter today, Ephesians 5, where again, we're, right now we're just looking at one verse. It's verse 31 that makes that all rather plain. Uh, listen to what Paul writes. Now you'll notice as we read this, that Paul simply quotes the first instructions given by God back in Genesis chapter 2 that explained to us what marriage was all about. Listen to it. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Paul thought that was important enough that it needed to be repeated because it's the essence of marriage. Because we see those two things here, duty and desire. That word united, I think the older translations still get it better. You are to leave your father and mother and you are to cleave to your wife. The word cleave there literally means you are to be glued together. And listen to me, this kind of glue is not Elmer's glue, I promise you, all right? This is permanent glue. This is glue that's meant to keep you together forever. That's the duty part. But then he also mentions here, the two shall be one flesh. That's the passion part. That's the feeling part. And God wants those two things to come together. Now, the question in today's message is, how do duty and desire fit together? We live in a culture that says they're almost opposite. We live in a culture that says if you throw duty in, you've just complicated the relationship. You've not helped it. What's our answer to that? Well, let's just study for a little bit. First of all, you must see yourself in marriage as a covenant maker, not a consumer. Now, the key word in today's message is a word we don't use much anymore and we've lost something. It is the word covenant. You see, too many of us have a consumer mentality, even when it comes to marriage. Now, what is a con consumer? Let me give you some definitions. A consumer, you stay connected as long as your needs are being met. In lots of areas, that's a pretty good thing. You've got a cell phone. You're, you're a consumer of that. If your cell phone provider is not providing good service and where you live, it's sort of crackly and hard to understand. Or if another cell phone provider comes along and says, I can give you the same thing for a much lower price. As a consumer, you'd be a nut to stay in a covenant relationship with your cell phone provider. You just don't do that, okay? You go, you know what? I'm cutting my losses with these guys and I'm moving on with somebody better. You know, if you run a business, you know, and someone is servicing you some material, you're going to stay with them until they become too expensive or someone else could give you the same product for less. Because you may end up not making a product, a profit because you have stuck with somebody that's really unprofitable. That's why we say you cut your losses. We do that in most every area. Maybe you've been shopping Winn-Dixie forever and you like Winn-Dixie, it's nice. But all of a sudden, right beside your Winn-Dixie store, they open this sparkling brand new Publix that seems to have a different array of products. As a consumer, you have no hesitation to go, you know what, I've shopped at Winn-Dixie for 20 years, but right now I think I prefer to go to this new Publix store. That's what consumers do. Now, the problem is when we begin to be consumers in our marriages, 
And I don't know about you, but most of us in our dating life, we were consumers. If things got tough, or, or if you begin to think you were giving more than you were getting, or there was tension, I don't know what you did, but I just got out of there, right? I mean, because that, that, that's the way it went. Now, a covenant relationship is completely different. Now, let me give you a definition of covenant. You've got it up there. It's a sacred binding promise. It's more than just a promise. It's sacred. And here's the cool news is that we serve a covenant-making God. We've got great examples of this. Let me tell you a story about one of the first covenants in the Bible. It's really, really a weird story. But God has promised Abraham that he will be a father of nations. And God wants to glue it together. He wants to submit it into a covenant where he said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to keep my part whether you do or not. You may turn out to be a liar, which you did at times. You may turn out to not always be the greatest guy in the world, but I'm making a covenant with you. How did God do this? God took these animals, okay? He takes, um, he takes a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, and kills them, splits them in half, and puts them split in half down this trail, okay? And then the Bible says a torch. This torch represents God making his covenant. The torch passes between the dead halves of these animals. You say, that is weird. That's a covenant. What is God saying? Is God makes this death march. What God is saying is, if I don't keep my covenant, I deserve to die. That's what he's saying. That's why a covenant is so binding. Because it is more than just a promise. It's a sacred promise. Now this idea is almost foreign to us. We, we don't know much about covenant making because we are much more consumers who think in almost every area of my life, I've always got the option to jump out. If something better's down the road, I'll go there. Maybe the only area that we still have a strong sense of covenant, I think, in our culture today is the parent-child relationship. That There's still a great social stigma if you have a child and because your child is messing up your schedule or causing you discomfort, and you would say, you know what? I'm leaving this child. I'm going to abandon this child. Somebody else can have this child. They're waking me up all during the night. So far, man, first couple of years, they ain't giving me nothing. You know what I mean? All they want me to do is feed them and change them, and it's just an absolute hassle, man, and I can't do the things I used to do, you know. We have an incredible social stigma if someone were to walk away from that. And there ought to be. And I think that's probably one of the few examples left where we still understand covenant relationships. You don't just walk away because the relationship is hard or unrewarding. But in marriage, we've moved away from the idea of covenant to consumer. We, we, we tend to believe it justifies me if my mate is not meeting my needs that I move on. Or we say, you know what, I've just not been happy in this relationship. Okay, I can move on. That's not the idea of covenant. Now let's talk specifically about the marriage covenant and why it is such a powerful covenant. 
The marriage covenant is by all covenants the most powerful because it is vertical and horizontal. Okay? It's a covenant between two people and it's a covenant between two people and God. Listen to a couple passages. Proverbs chapter 2 verse 17. He says, you have ignored the covenant you made before God. The marriage covenant is so binding because it is a covenant with God. And then Malachi chapter 2, he says, this is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. When you make a marriage vow, it's before God and it's with somebody else. There are covenants in the Bible that are just between two people. That's cool. There are covenants between someone and God. That's cool. But marriage is beyond all of that. It's between all parties, vertical and horizontal. That's why when I stand up here to perform a wedding ceremony, in traditional vows, there are two parts. And they represent this. Do you, Jane, take blank to be your lawful wedded husband promising before God and your friends and family that you'll be a faithful, loving, devoted spouse? Now, what position are we in on the stage at that point? Who are they facing? They are facing me. At this point, when they say the I do's, the I wills, they're not facing each other. They're facing the preacher. The significance of that is that that first part of the vow is not being promised to me, it's being promised to God. The I do is being said traditionally to God. You're making a covenant with God. Now then what do we do after that? We say, okay, hand your bouquet over here, and now let's turn to each other, and let's hold hands. And you repeat after me. I'm going to be there in sickness and health, to love and to cherish, to death do his part. I mean, now you're making the covenant between each other. Because there is something to these traditional vows that's especially important. It's more than just a piece of paper. It's more than just words. It's a covenant you make, first of all, with God, and then with each other. Now, here's what I want you to understand this morning. That is far superior to our modern-day view of simply romantic, passionate love. Now, don't get me wrong now. Biblical love involves duty, and it does involve desire. It, it involves commitment, and it does involve passion. But the Bible would say those things, they're complementary. They don't complicate things. They make things a whole lot better. Now, why is that true? Let's talk about that for a moment. Why are covenant vows superior? Uh, number one, they give you a concrete expression of love. There's something concrete here. There's something that says this absolutely means something. That's why, you know, I, I, I sort of hate it when people go to the public, go down to the courthouse to get married. I say, but come by my office. Don't do that. Let's, let's do something that involves God. Let's just don't go get the piece of paper. Let, let's do the thing right. Because the covenant vows are a concrete expression of love. It means something. You know, as your children are growing up, I try to say to my children, Sort of silly things they hate to hear. Make a kiss mean something, all right? If you kiss some girl, it better mean something. Don't just go around kissing everybody. That's, that's something you need to say for somebody special. And don't you just run around telling everybody when you get a little excited that I love you. That's an easy thing to do. 
And guys, the words, I love you, are really pretty cheap words in today's culture. I mean, we can just say that over and over again. I love you, I love you, I love you. Someone might say, I love you one day, and I actually break up with you the next day. Anybody ever experienced that? It happens. And that's why we need something better than just saying, I love you. I hate some of the new vows that people write for themselves because it's like, I just love you and I think you're beautiful and I think this is just the really greatest thing in my life. A covenant vow is way beyond that. Beware of someone who wants to tell you they love you, but won't make a vow of marriage. Now, I'm not saying you don't get another relationship. That's okay. But, but don't say, well, let's go live together and test this thing out. I mean, you, first of all, don't marry somebody if you don't want to marry them. But if you're going to marry them, do it right. Make it a covenant between you and that person and God. All right? Number two. The superiority of covenant vows is that it gives you space for vulnerability. We all understand when we're dating, we put our best foot forward, don't we? I mean, if someone didn't do that, you wouldn't keep dating them, right? I mean, you know, you'd cut that off pretty quick. We we want to impress and we want to entice. You know, you ever see somebody and all of a sudden they're dressing up all the time? And you think, man, you're normally a slob. You know, what, what has happened to you? Well, normally they're seeing somebody they want to impress. And so they're, they're, they're dressing up, and so that's what you do when you're dating. You, um, you want to look right. You want the chemistry to be right. I mean, even when you come to the, the, the marriage ceremony, I mean, everybody looks... Have you ever seen an ugly bride? I mean, I've seen them ugly the day before. I've seen them ugly afterwards. <laughs> but, but in that moment, I'm telling you, everybody... <laughs> every, my wife is shaking her head at me. I don't know why. Okay. <laughs> Everybody looks good in that moment. And that's what you do through all of that. But the truth is, we don't always look good. The truth is, you know, he goes bald. The truth is, she wakes up without her makeup on. The truth is, you know, we put weight on. The truth is, you know, that we lose some of the pizzazz maybe we had when we were younger. And that's why a covenant vow is so important. Because it gives you space for vulnerability. Where in dating, you pretty much covered up the worst. When you get married, you are literally, physically, and emotionally naked in front of each other. And there's no longer that, that place to impress. You can't keep covering up. As hard as you may try, it's, it's going to come out. They're going to see the worst in you. Now here's the cool thing about covenant vows. It gives you the space and the security to work through that. And it really leads you to real passion and intimacy. Because real passion is not, it's not the image of the, you know who you marry, let's just be real honest. You marry an image. You marry of who they want you to think they are and who you would want to think they are. That's, that's just the truth, all right? Real love is when you're in that relationship and you're vulnerable. You don't know how to get close to somebody, whether it's in marriage or in friendship or in church. You know how people get close? They get close by being vulnerable. They get close by sharing a little bit about the truth of themselves and you still accept it. And then they open the door a little bit wider and they tell you a little bit more about their past and you still love them. And they start opening their door up and, and before long, you know, the people you're close to, if you don't have any good friends, this is how you do it. You've told things to. They, they know the worst about you. And guys, that's the beauty of covenant marriage, is there's this person who's married to you, and because of the covenant vows, there is the space 
to allow those things to come out, not being worried that they're going to leave the next day. That brings me to number two. Number three, excuse me. It gives us time for growth. Covenant vows keep you from running away too soon. And Stephanie, I went to a marriage counselor in Pensacola. I'll never forget him saying this. We were early in our marriage, and it, it was not encouraging words at the time. But he said to us, he said, most marriages don't really get good until about seven or eight years. That's what statistics say. Now, for some of you are thinking, what happened? <laughs> you know, I passed that. But here's what I see. I see so many couples, they miss the good part. Because our culture says, you're five years in, and we're still rubbing each other the wrong way, you know, and it's still tense, and we can't agree. And you're five years in, and culture says, man, it ain't never going to work. And they miss working to when it's really good. And that's, guys, why the divorce rate's so high out there. Because we don't have this idea of covenant any longer. And and the truth is, it's not keeping you more passionate is keeping you from passion because you don't have the time and space to build it. And so you need covenant vows that give you that space and give you that time. I mean, if I were to ask people to raise their hands right now and ask you, if you had not been a Christian and made covenant vows, how many of you would not be married today? How many of you raise your hand? Yeah, go on, brother John. How many would raise your hand? Please, you're giving me some comfort. Please keep raising your hand, all right? I mean, I know Stephanie, I would say, you know, if there had not been that sacred covenant there through those first early tough years, man, we'd have ran. And then we'd have missed out on the best. And that's why we've got to teach this idea of covenant. It gives time for growth. And let me give you another point here. Why is it better? It gives the promise for the future. Covenant vows... The vows you make when you get married are not about the present. That's why these new weird vows are not good. Because what they're saying is, I see you right now and you're so beautiful and so cool and I love you. Everybody knows that. You wouldn't be standing up there if you didn't like each other. Come on. What those vows are about is how you're going to feel about each other in the future. That's what they're about. I, I like an article wrote written by a guy named Lewis Meads called Controlling the Unpredictable, the Power of Promising. And he says this statement, I think it's true. We are largely who we become through making wise promises and keeping them. If you want to have good character, if you want to be a good person, it's about making promises and keeping them. If you want to over there be the person you dream about being, then you're going to have to learn to live in covenant relationships. So, it's not just about now, it's about then. It's about the future. It's about saying, I'll be there. I can remember walking the beach of Pensacola the night Stephanie and I said, you know what? This has been hard. We're getting some help and we're going to work through this. But here's what we're going to have to promise each other. i got to know that when I wake up every morning, you're going to be there. I, I, I can't every day wonder. And you've got to know the same for me. That was a breakthrough moment in our marriage. And that's what a covenant vow is all about. Because you don't know what the future holds. We've had some incredibly beautiful pictures of this here in this church. I might think of um, Brother Bill Page. 
And when his wife Dot got Alzheimer's and the way he served her, I think about Miss Brenda right now and what she's going through with Ron. I think about others of you, like Miss Cindy and what happened with her husband Alex. That's not when you're standing there. You're not thinking one day I may have to feed my husband. One day, you know, my wife may wake up and not even know my name. That's why a covenant vow is important. Because you're saying, you know what, I- I'm promising, not just about right now when everybody looks cool and acts cool, I'm promising what happens in the future is going to be good. Now let me say this, let me just add a, a quick addendum here, and I don't have time to address this. But I'm not trying to say here that there's never a time where marriage should be ended. I'm not trying to say that. Biblically, you know, there are times where things are so horrific that God gave permission for marriages to be ended. Matthew 19, he talks about adultery. Doesn't say it has to happen, but there is permission there. And the word adultery there, if you read the really old translations, is accurately translated, it's breaking a covenant. There are points where someone so incredibly breaks the covenant that marriage is broken. Sometimes it's not even by your choice. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says desertion gives you a reason to, to, um, to break the covenant. If someone just deserts you and leaves you, Paul says you're no longer bound. So don't, don't mistake what I'm saying here is there are no exceptions. But what I am saying here, guys, is we have made far too many flimsy exceptions that keep people from real passionate covenant love because they just don't stick it out long enough. They don't give the space, they don't give the time, they don't make the promise of the future. I like what um, Timothy Keller said, who wrote the book that I'm basing so much of what I'm saying on. He said this, he said, my, life, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed. And each of the five has been me. <laughs> you, you really in that moment don't know. But that's the beauty of covenant love. You work through that. And that that brings us to number five. Here's the deal. It's the foundation for profound passion. Duty and desire are not the opposite. Love and law do not fight each other. They go hand in hand. And and what God is saying is whether it's the piece of paper or you're stomping on a piece of glass or you're jumping a broomstick or you're making public sacred vows. There's something about that commitment, about that promise, about that covenant that leads you to the greatest passion in life. You see, what the world wants to tell you is if you get married and you stick with it, you're going to kill your passion. What God would want to tell you today is if you're willing to get in there and work at it and stay even when you're seeing the worst of each other, your passion will be much greater than anybody else around you. doesn't take away from it. It adds to it. There's a great... Um, article about a woman named Wendy Plump, and she describes her marriage and how she ended her marriage. She had an affair, and she talks about the thrill of the forbiddenness. She talked about, you know, the newness. She talked about the ego rush of meeting someone who charms you and falls in love with you and the thrill of the illicit affair. Then she says after she had an affair... Eventually, her husband had an affair, and the marriage was over. But she writes in the middle of these affairs, her parents celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And she writes this, 
They have their marriage of 50 years behind them. And it's a monument of success. A few weeks of illicit passion, passion, a few weeks of illicit passion cannot hold a candle to what my parents have. And then she writes, If you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks much more like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered the spin artillery. What's she saying? Guys, you compare the affairs that her she had and her husband had and all the excitement of that moment. What she's saying is that doesn't compare to somebody who stays married for 50 years. In fact, what she says is, though that may look thrilling in the beginning, in the long run, it's going to look like Fallujah. That's why when people come to me so flippantly talking about ending their marriage and they got children and all, I'm like, my goodness, I'm not even talking about Bible right now. Do you know what's going to happen? I mean, I've seen some great marriages, at least at one point in this church, that have been dissolved. You can name them. And I'm right, I'm watching now their children in college and beyond college, and they don't love God. They don't have a foundation. And everything's messed up. Do we really think we can pull this off? And there not be ramifications and damage? I mean, when you permanently glue something, oh yeah, there are reasons to take it apart. But when you permanently glue something and you eventually have to take it apart, do you realize the damage that happens to both surfaces? And then you add children to that and the additional damage? Because the excitement of the moment does not outweigh the passion of commitment. In fact, let me put it this way as we draw to a close. There is nothing more truly passionate than being fully known and fully loved. The world may say it's a mystery of the person you really don't know. It's the mystery of the person who's not seen the worst in you. You've not seen the worst in her. But God would say there's nothing more truly passionate than being fully known and fully loved. That's real love. When that person, despite the fact they've seen the worst in you, and you've seen the worst in them, you still say, you know what? I have a covenant with you, and on the basis of that, we're going to build a love that's going to last and that is far more beautiful. Someone once said, is there anything more beautiful than you love? And someone else answered, yes, old love. Absolutely. So let me give you some practical application today. Practical application. How do you bring duty and desire together? They're not fighting each other. It's not a conflict. They go together. Here's the way you do this practically. You act yourself into a better way of feeling. If your marriage is strained, what you must do is act yourself into feeling better. You see, what our culture says is, if I don't feel it, I can't give it. Buddy, you're asking me today when I don't feel in love with this person to serve them. When this person is repulsive to me, for me to go to bed with them, when this, I'm not asking to do that, God's asking to do that. You see, our culture says, your feelings lead to your actions. Guys, how about your feelings? I don't know about yours, but mine, in every area of my life, they go sort of up and down, man. If you, if you base your work life, your spiritual life, your marriage on feelings, you're in trouble in every one of those areas. So it's not your, 
your feelings that should lead to your actions, the, the better attack when things are not right is that your actions can lead to your feelings. And so you act yourself into a better way of feeling. And so that's my challenge for you today. Maybe things aren't the way. Your feelings will line up with your actions if you'll consistently serve that person. It's hard to love someone, serve someone, compliment someone, and at the same time, resent them. So today, can I ask you to do something? In a few minutes, if those couples want to go ahead and get up, we're going to have couples in the back to pray with you. I'm afraid some of you think, man, if I walk back there, I'm saying my marriage is in trouble. No, what you're saying is, I'm going to take an action. I'm not just going to come hear this sermon and walk out of here and be the same. I'm grabbing my spouse by the hand right now, and we're going to pray. And maybe we got a solid marriage, but there's been some tension there. It's not everything it ought to be, and I, we're going to do something. I'm either coming forward, and we're going to confess this thing and get the prayers of the whole church, or the least I'm going to do is grab you by the hand and get back there and pray with somebody. Take an action. If you just sit here and tell me, amen, and buddy, I appreciate that sermon, and you don't take any action, I hate to tell you, the message is worthless. So why do you need a piece of paper? Because it's that covenant relationship that gives the relationship the opportunity to grow and to thrive. That's why you need it. I'll never forget being in a small group years and years ago. And we were talking about marriage. It's probably the most awkward moment I ever remember in a small group. And you know, buddy, we always go around the circle, so everybody's got to talk. And I made a mistake. Because there was one couple in our group, and we all knew they had a terrible marriage. They just basically couldn't stand each other. It was shocking that night they were even sitting beside each other. And so we all had to go around the circle and say something good about our spouse. And most everybody, that was pretty easy and fun and, and finally we got to this couple and it got to the man and you know he, he did well I mean he said a few things you know nice but he it was obviously wasn't natural it was it was a struggle and then it got to her and she just sat there I thought she was never gonna say a word it felt like it was five ten minutes she just sat there and even I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know like, hey, let me tell you something good about him. I mean, I mean, I didn't know what to do. I'll never forget what she finally said. She said, the one good thing I can say about our marriage is we show up at the same address every night. That was the best she could say. Now, I'm not saying you, telling you that's okay, but I am saying this. That's a foundation. That, that actually says something good about them. That says there's a foundation of commitment that we could build off if we'd get busy, if we'd do something, if we'd act. And so this morning, there's hope for your marriage, even if the best thing you could say awkwardly is, we show up at the same address. We're there. You see, Jesus taught us about that kind of love. The cross was not about God having these emotional feelings when He's on that cross. Jesus got spit on His face. He's ridiculed. He's dying. He's in pain. 
He doesn't stay on that cross because for some reason he feels like doing that. He stays on that cross because he wanted to establish a blood covenant relationship with you and with me. He stayed when he could have called 10,000 angels. And that's why you can have a covenant everlasting relationship with God. But here's the most wonderful thing about God. He knows everything about you. He knows every bad, he knows more bad things about you than you know about you, you know? You are fully known to God, and yet you are fully loved. It's off that foundation that you can build a beautiful life. It's off that foundation. April, I've been waiting for some applause. I appreciate it, all right? It's off that foundation that you can build a successful marriage. Fully known. And fully loved. So right now, we're about to sing. You need to take some action. There's going to be some couples in the back. We'll be down front here. If right now you need to take action, you don't feel like it, you want to stand there and stay mad at your spouse, You take some action. Pray with somebody. Do something. And remember what covenant is all about. And that in the long run, it can lead you to more passion and more desire than you'd ever have any other way. Why don't you stand together and sing?